Good to be together. Um, a couple things just to sort of frame our time here. Uh, a reminder that we are in the third week now of this new adventure journey that we are calling Practice. And a couple of weeks ago, we introduced this uh, to our congregation. We are considering right now the practice of Sabbath. What does it mean to enter into the rest that Jesus offers us? We've been processing this the last couple of weeks in groups, and it's been really encouraging to me, really exciting to hear some of the conversations, the questions, the wrestling, the practice, if you will, of this practice as you guys have been uh, sort of working out what does this look like in our lives. Our next practice is going to be introduced on February 9th, so if you are in town, make sure you are here for that gathering. It's going to be fun as we step into practice number two. Again, the uh, uh, best way to engage with this is in groups, and so if you are not involved in a group yet, make sure you, you check one of those out. We have a bunch of groups going right now, and all the information for that is out there on the tables in the lobby and at the Connection Point tent. Now today we continue a conversation that we started last Sunday called What We Talk About When We Talk About Giving. It's a mouthful. Um, and part of that is intentional. We have an awkward title because this is an awkward subject, right? We don't like to talk about money in our culture and in our society. It might be, it might be the most taboo subject that we can talk about. We're more likely to get in an argument about politics or even get into our views on sexuality or whatever other topic it is before we would ever open our bank account statement and let someone else have a look at it. But we're talking about it for a couple of weeks here for three reasons. We're talking about money because it's so formational. So much of our lives gets tied back to this issue of money. And so it's something we need to talk about if we want to be formed in the ways of Jesus. Practices like Sabbath, fasting, these things are important, but so many things come back to money in our lives. We also want to talk about it so that we are transparent about this issue as a church and as a community. And just a, another reminder, February 9th is our next big practice gathering, but that night we will also have what we call our state of discovery meeting where we talk about our our finances and just where things are at in a little bit more detail. So make sure you mark that down. And then the last reason we talk about it is because there's really no way around it. We are a, a community that talks about scripture a lot and the Bible talks about money a lot. And so it's just going to come up uh, from time to time. Now we're, we're spending this conversation focused specifically around the three words that come up in uh, our liturgy, if you will. And, and you just heard Janine uh, give this little speech, but every week when we invite our community to give, we invite you to give worshipfully, missionally, and sacrificially. And, and these are not just sort of throwaway words for us to kind of fill that moment in the gathering. Those are foundational words for us that represent our theology of finances, our theology of giving. So we're walking through each one of those. Last week, we started with mission. What does it mean for us to give to the, the mission of God in the world? And we had this moment of sort of dreaming about our collective potential as a church. What, what could we do with the resources that God has given us? We also saw this very strong connection between mission and grace, right? That this is all about sharing the good news of Jesus, about his death and resurrection on our behalf. So today, we turn our attention to this word worship. What are we talking about when we say that we give worshipfully? 
I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into this. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you this morning. We are grateful for the sunshine, the beautiful weather, for this time that we get to spend each week gathered in this one place to worship, to sing songs, to be together as we grow in relationship with one another and with you, to take communion, uh, and to remember the good news of Jesus, what he has done on our behalf through his death and his resurrection. Father, now we, we bring our full selves into this moment. We trust uh, that you are here, that you are moving, and that you will speak to us. Would you hold our concerns, our worries, our fears, all of the baggage that we bring in with us, especially related to this topic of money, would you hold all of that for us, that we might be fully present here in this moment to be able to hear from your spirit and to respond in whatever way we need to respond. We pray all of this this morning in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, a number of years ago, Jonathan Safran Foer, he's actually one of my favorite novelists, but he wrote a totally different kind of book called Eating Animals. And it's actually his case for uh, being a vegan. It's like, don't eat animals is really the point of the book. Um, not what I want to talk about at all. The first two chapters of this book are an exploration of the power of stories in our lives. And so he, he kind of enters into this topic by talking about story. And in particular, he, he talks about going to his grandmother's home as a child. And he, he would go to his grandma's house, and she would, on her desk, have this pile of coupons. And, and then in her uh, pantry, she'd have stacks and stacks of cans of beans and in the basement, um, like hundreds of bags of flour. And, and uh, it sort of raised the question for him, like, why does grandma have coupons and cans and bags of flour in her house? Why was she always going to the grocery store whenever there was a good deal on those items, even if she already had what appeared to be more than enough of them? This was a woman who had uh, lived through the Great Depression, who had survived the Holocaust, who had immigrated to the United States, and, and had been deeply shaped by those experiences, right? She had a story that, that said, you need to be prepared, you need to be ready, because it could all disappear in a moment. And so if there's a deal on flour, you go and buy more flour. We all live from these kinds of stories. We all have a money story. I did not grow up uh, poor by any means, but I grew up in a family with a very strict budget and with this ethic of like, if you want to uh, do certain things, namely uh, drive your own car, you will need to get a job and you will need to buy it. So I got a job as soon as I could at Salinas Nissan washing cars and I saved up all of my money and after a couple of years, I was able to buy this this beautiful 1983 Honda Civic. Look at that thing. That's glorious. <laughs> I was so proud of that car. The only problem was I was going to school, I was going to high school with people who were driving uh, like lifted Chevys and, and brand new BMWs. And I, I literally, my senior year, parked next to a kid. His dad was like the big plumber in town. He had a new car every quarter. And I, re I remember, like, I'm driving that thing, parking next to a new car every quarter, and I'm like, whatever, whatever it is like to have that kind of money, that I want to do that. 
Uh, and, and now, you know, kids who had like gas cards and their insurance was paid for, all this kind of stuff, that shaped my approach, my thinking about money for several years. And, and it, it informed the ways that I made decisions about where I went to college and what kind of major uh, I engaged in, all of those sorts of things. We have a story that we live by, and especially when it comes to money, we have a money story. And so those narratives are, are worth exploring, right? What uh, what story shapes the way that you approach your money, your finances? There's a deep connection between that story and what we worship. So let's explore that for a few moments. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. And uh, someone on our team would love to come around and make sure you have a, a copy of the Bible this morning. You can uh, feel free to take that with you as well if you need one. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. Matthew chapter 6, this uh, uh, comes in the flow of a larger te uh, teaching that Jesus is giving. So these are the words of Jesus, and, and this is one of his first big uh, teaching moments in the book of Matthew, as Matthew tells us the Jesus story. And uh, it, he's sort of outlining his vision for this thing called the kingdom of heaven. Right in the middle of it, though, he talks about money. Verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A couple of verses later, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Again, these words, part of a bigger teaching, and throughout this teaching, Jesus refers to this idea of the heart. When he's talking about the heart, he's speaking to the deepest orientation of our soul, what we might call our identity, right? He's speaking to these deep stories and narratives that shape us, our hearts. Now, I think a simplistic application of what Jesus says here might be to say, well, obviously money is a bad thing, right? And so I need to get rid of it or I just shouldn't like it very much, pretend like it's not that important. But at least here, Jesus doesn't really give us like an outline for what to do with our money. He says, invest your treasure in heaven, but you can't just log into your Vanguard account, pick the heaven tab and just like send all of your money into, that would be nice, right? If you could just do that. So this is not so much about what we do. This is an invitation that Jesus gives to examine our hearts, to look at those deep stories that drive us, to ask the question, what does my treasure and my posture towards my treasure reveal about my heart? What is my money story? These words are echoed by a guy named Paul later on in the New Testament. Paul is a, a, one of the first uh, what we would call missionaries. He plants a bunch of churches. He invests in churches uh, all over the place. And he ends up developing this protege named Timothy. And these are some words that Paul writes to this guy, Timothy. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Generous and willing to share. In that way, he says, 
They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now that last phrase should be familiar to us if you've been here the last couple of weeks. This is that zoe ionias, right? Eternal life, full life, abundant life by being generous and willing to share. So Paul and Jesus both make it very clear that if we are not careful, money will become our master. Because it is so prevalent in our lives, so connected to so many different aspects of our lives, it can very quickly become a controlling factor or the controlling factor in our life. It can become a God substitute. And the Bible has a word for this. A God substitute is an idol. Now, for some of us, we hear this word idol, we might think of, of like someone that we really look up to, one of our heroes, or we might think of a little golden figure that Indiana Jones is trying to find in one of those movies. But when the Bible is talking about idols, it's talking about anything, anything that takes the place of God. And that can be a whole bunch of different things, right? A whole bunch of different things, but for a lot of us, the idol is money, or money is very... Uh, closely connected to whatever that thing is that we idolize. Now this brings us back to this word worship. There are a couple different words used throughout scripture that end up being translated into English as worship. These words can mean to bow down, to kiss towards. There's this sort of intimacy involved in worship. They can mean service and they speak to the ideas of reverence and awe. Worship kind of mashing that all together, worship is ascribing ultimate worth to something. Worship is ascribing ultimate worth to something. And when you think about it that way, we realize that we are all worshipers. We're all worshiping something. And what we worship forms us. David Foster Wallace gave this brilliant speech many years ago at Kenyon College, and one of the killer lines in this speech goes like this. He says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. This is not coming from a Jesus perspective at all, by the way. No such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you know his story, you know that that's true. This is why when we talk about giving, we are talking about worship. If we do not take a worshipful posture to our financial resources, money will eat us alive. It will become our master. And so since it is so prevalent in our lives, I think there are, uh, are a couple of postures we need to take towards our resources, towards our uh, relationship to money. First one is this. Okay, this is the posture that says God owns everything and I am simply a manager or a steward. <clears throat> now again, in our liturgy every week when we invite you to give in that moment that we call offering, we talk about this as giving back to God. Okay, and that language is intentional. It comes from this posture. God owns everything. I am a manager or a steward. This is imagery that Jesus uses in a number of different stories, particularly his parables. It also draws us back to the creation story, all the way back to the very beginning. God creates human beings in his image 
man and woman, calls us to have dominion over creation. Now, dominion doesn't mean domination and exploitation. It means managing. It means stewarding. If you ever house sat for someone, you know what it means to be a steward, right? For a period of time, you are given authority over this house. And you get to stay there and, and use the fridge and the stove, whatever other things that house may have. Uh, but it's never really yours, right? You don't own it. You are just there to take care of it, to make sure that things are in order. And, and ideally, this is a big hint if you ever house it for me, ideally you want to leave that place the way you found it, right? Or even better. But that sort of mentality, right, that I'm here to take care of this thing, is the mentality of a steward. This is a worshipful posture towards money. So first thing, God owns everything. I'm a manager or a steward. Second posture is this. My heart goes where I put God's money. My heart goes where I put God's money. If you want to know what you treasure, look at your last 10 to 15 receipts. Look at your bank statement, your credit card statement. That will tell you a lot about what you treasure. And maybe kind of the flip of that is if you feel like your heart is not in the right place, change your spending habits and watch your heart follow. Now in a great sort of twist of events this morning, I'm going to tell a story about my friend Craig who just happens to be sitting here in the front row. So that's, that's beautiful how that worked out. Craig was my campus minister when I was a college student at the University of the Pacific. And uh, a couple years after that, he moved to Bulgaria to work with students there. I think you've been there for like 12, 13 years now. Uh, when Craig said, I'm moving to Bulgaria, I can tell you right now, I had zero heart for, for Bulgaria. And that's not like a mean thing. I just, I didn't even know where the country was. I don't know that I could have like found it on a map. But that's where Craig was going, and I love Craig. And so I've been uh, supporting him since I graduated, and I continue to support him. And since then, over the last 10 years, I know like 100% more about Bulgaria than I did before. And, and I care about that place in a way that I never would if I wasn't invested in the work that Craig was doing there. If you want a heart for God, give to things that God cares about. If you want a heart for God, give to the things that God cares about. Our hearts will follow our treasure. Posture three, giving back to God ultimately is about killing idols. It might sound like strong language, but I think this is actually really important to use strong language on this point. Giving back to God is about killing idols. And I want you to hear me very clearly on this. Last week we talked about mission. We dreamed about what we could do as a church as we tap into our collective potential. All of that is great. But giving back to God at Discovery is not about funding Discovery. It's not about building an organization. God is not looking for philanthropists. God wants your heart he wants to be in relationship with you. Martin Luther said there are three conversions a person needs to experience. The conversion of the head, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the pocketbook. Where your heart goes, that's where your treasure is. Where your treasure is, your heart will follow. We cannot serve multiple masters, and so this requires killing our idols. One of the fastest ways to deal with the idol of money is to give it away. Now, I want to pause here for a moment, and, and I want to tackle a couple of questions that come up often in this conversation about money and 
church. I'm not going to, just a fair warning, I'm not going to be able to get like fully through each one of these. There will probably be some things that maybe are left uh, uh, to explore and that's fine. But I want to just give a a couple quick answers to some common questions that come up around this topic. So the first question is this, what's up with 10%? Right, what's the deal with that? Why why are Christians all excited about 10%? (laughs) Well, this uh, uh, historically and biblically is called the tithe. And it comes from the Old Testament, this idea of giving one-tenth of our stuff back to God. You can find uh, one reference to it in Deuteronomy, but it's in a number of different places throughout the Old Testament. And, and I think there's this thing, you know, these days where, where we like to argue about this. Um, you know, what does that mean? Are we bound to it? Is it like other Old Testament things? Like, I eat bacon, um, so I'm not bound to that law. Do I have to be bound to this tithe thing? Does Jesus do away with it? So a, a couple things to chew on in relation to this question. First is this. The trajectory of Scripture is always away from law and legalism towards grace and generosity and freedom. All right, The trajectory away from legalism towards grace. That being said, I think Jesus does free us from the tithe. But here's the kicker. It's not so that we can give less. It's so that we can give more. 10%, I think, is a really nice, easy, round number. For those of us like myself who struggle with math, you just move a decimal place, boom, okay, easy. That being said, I I think the deeper question is not, is it 10% or why or whatever? It's not about the number. It's the, the question we need to be asking is, what does radical generosity look like for me? Given my life stage, the resources that I have, the income that I make, is my heart growing in generosity, not the magic number? Are you with me? In their book, God and Money, John uh, Cortinez and Greg Bauer, this, by the way, is a phenomenal book. Uh, if you are interested in reading more about just how to manage your money as a uh, Jesus follower, would highly recommend this. These two guys were... Um, working on their master's degree, their, their MBA at Harvard Business School, and they did their thesis project at Harvard on uh, what Scripture has to say about money. And it led them to this place where these two guys are now giving away 50 to 80% of their incomes. And, and I'm not saying that that's the goal for every single one of us, but they outline just some really great principles of generosity In that book. Again, the goal here is not a number. The goal is radical generosity. And it's stewarding God's money in a way that aligns our hearts with His heart and destroys that idol of money in our lives. Now, second big question Do I have to give to Discovery or to my local church, or can I give that money somewhere else to some other organization or cause that I care about? This comes back to those uh, worshipful postures, this idea that your heart will go where you put your treasure. So what I would say here is that if this is a question for you, I think you need to ask the question, am I plugged into a local church and am I passionate about that church? And to say this, if you are not giving to your church, then your heart is probably not there. So what I would encourage you to do, and this is risky, I think, for a pastor to say this, but you need to find the place where you want to give, where you are excited about that mission, where you want to see that church flourish 
and, and, and grow and for God to do something there. Because again, where you invest your time, treasure, talents, your heart will follow and it's vice versa. Again, lots of freedom, I think, in this. In 2 Corinthians, we read, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Notice these two words, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now, last question. What if I'm in like a crazy amount of debt? What if my finances are weird? What if I'm a student? Uh, do I need to wait until I get all of that in order before I start giving? Now, I will say this. I do think that there are some very extreme situations where you might need to cease giving. And again, the principle here is about freedom and about grace. The trajectory of Scripture is away from legalism and towards grace. But generally speaking, and I found this to be true in my own life and as I've counseled other people, generally speaking, giving is one of the best and fastest ways to get your finances in order. If you are having financial difficulties, if you feel like that part of your life is out of control, start giving and everything else will, will slowly start to fall into place because you'll start to think about your resources in a different way, in a much more intentional way. Now, to students particularly, I always encourage you guys to begin with budgeting. Just take one or two months, track uh, the money that you spend. Just sort of see where it goes. Get a picture of where it goes. And then after that, create a couple of categories and limit your spending in those categories. This is called budgeting. And it will put you miles ahead of your peers when it comes to money. Students can give. Some of the most radically generous people here actually are students. So, again, begin with, with budgeting, track what you have, and then give what you can and see what God does with that. A couple more resources that I, I would throw out there. We did a teaching on this about a year ago as part of our Matthew series and just kind of a different angle on this if you want to go back and listen to that. And then there are some uh, resources listed in your worship guide uh, that you can take a look at as uh, as well. That being said, when it comes to this area of our lives, one of the best things that you can do, uh, even if it might uh, uh, scare you to death, but one of the best things that you can do is to sit down with somebody else and, and just talk through some of these questions. Open up your financial life to someone else. Have them walk through it with you. That will help clarify so many things. And there's a number of people here uh, who'd be happy to do that. I like to do that, although I don't, you know, if you don't want to do it with your pastor, I get it. Um, but our treasurer, Kevin, uh, one of our elders, Ewan, several other people here would love uh, to have that conversation with you if uh, you feel like you need to do that. Now, to close, if you still have your Bible open, flip all the way over to Genesis chapter 14. First book of the Bible, first couple pages into Scripture. Genesis chapter 14. This is one of the most fascinating scenes in the whole Bible to me. It comes very early in what we would call the Abraham story. In fact, it uh, occurs before his name is changed. So he'll, he'll be referred to here as Abram. This is before his son Isaac is born very early on in his journey with God. Abram has this nephew named Lot and Lot gets himself into a big mess that involves uh, kings and armies and there's this battle and there's like gang warfare type thing going on. And Abram comes in and rescues 
lot. And then sort of out of nowhere, in the middle of this chaotic, messy scene, this guy named Melchizedek shows up, and look at what happens. Verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. This is way before Exodus and Leviticus and the law and Jerusalem and the temple, all that kind of stuff. Melchizedek, priest of God Most High, he blesses Abram saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Which, by the way, was a lot of things because he had just won a battle and had like taken all these other guys' stuff. This is maybe the first worship gathering in all of Scripture. Look at what happens here. In the middle of this chaotic scene, Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem, by the way, means peace, shows up with bread and wine. He blesses Abram, and Abram responds in this posture of worship, giving away a tenth of his stuff. Later in the New Testament, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews brings Melchizedek back, making this connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. You, Jesus, they write, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, a priest of God Most High. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant because Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Melchizedek shows up out of nowhere, intercedes for Abram. Jesus shows up on our behalf and intercedes for us. Abram, in the middle of his chaos, met by Melchizedek, priest of, the, of God Most High, offered good news in the form of blessing, in the form of bread and wine. And Abram's response is to worship. It is to give. And in the midst of our chaos, our mess, our sin, we are met by Jesus, King and Priest of God Most High, offered good news, grace, in the form of his body and his blood, broken and poured out for us. Worship is our primary response to the good news of Jesus. The good news that Jesus has given his body and his blood for our freedom. And that response, it can take on a lot of different forms. It it, it comes through our words and our actions, through song and serving and tasting and sharing. But it also comes through giving. So when we talk about giving, we're talking about smashing our idols. We're talking about worship. We're talking about freedom. Freedom to live in this kingdom of right relationships. Freedom from shame and sin and the mess that we have made of our lives. Freedom from the power of lesser masters. Freedom to serve and to worship a better master. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we, we begin our response with this moment of confession. Uh, confessing all the ways in which money becomes an idol for us. Becomes a God replacement or is intertwined, deeply connected to the thing that we oftentimes substitute for right relationship with you. 
God, it can be really hard to know when we are serving you and when we're serving something else. And so would you clarify for that, that for us this morning? We want to have a, a worshipful posture, God, towards the things that you have given us. To uh, know that it's yours, that we are here to steward it and manage it as best we can. God, as we learn how to do that, would you, uh, would our hearts follow? Would our hearts become more aligned with your heart? God, we're grateful again for this time that we get to spend this morning. Would you remind us in a fresh new way of the good news of Jesus? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our time this morning the way that we do every Sunday. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to respond in worship. We're going to respond in prayer. We're going to respond by taking communion together. A couple of people uh, should be on either side of the theater here if you would like to pray with someone this morning by these lights. They would love to pray with you. Um, and then during this time, as we sing these songs and close our gathering together, you're invited to the table to the bread and the wine, or in our case, the juice, right? These very tangible reminders of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, that through his grace, we are invited into this life of freedom. We are invited into zoe aeneas, eternal life, full life, abundant life. The bread and the juice remind us of this good news, of this truth. So when you are ready this morning, take a few minutes to reflect and then when you are ready, come and take communion with us as we worship together.